Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. It's Boaty Day today, which means there's only one person sniffing around to co-host with me. Hello, Chris. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? How did you cope in 38 degrees being ginger? Not well. Um, I decided going outside was a bad idea at all costs, so I spent three hours laying in the bath. Excellent. Uh, But you have clothes on today, which I understand is progress, and our guest will be very pleased. Uh, Who's (laughs) our guest today? Uh, today we have got uh, Leo Marriott, who has written uh, quite an extensive collection of books. And the one that is definitely made onto my wish list this morning uh, is uh, Treaty Cruisers on the Interwar uh, Shipbuilding Programs following the Washington Treaty in the 1930s. Excellent. Leo, welcome. Hello. So, you, I'm glad somebody buys my books. <laughs> <laughs> buys all of them, <laughs> religiously. <laughs> Okay, so the new one is Naval Battles of the Second World War, uh, and this has come out in sort of two sections, hasn't it? And we're going to focus on the first one today, Chris, which is Atlantic and Mediterranean. So take us away. Um, We're going to run through, as you cover a large amount of the uh, naval battles in the Second World War, a lot of which um, popular memory tends to to forget, and we just talk about the big ones, but you've done quite a few really awesome ones. Um, So um, we're going to go through them all slowly in in follow-up questions but what made you choose these battles and events in particular as opposed to some of the other smaller ones that um the possible contenders well um obviously there are a lot of engagements during the uh, the war uh both in the atlantic and the mediterranean which is covered in this book and then the uh, pacific uh, war as well and originally the book was commissioned by a publisher some 20 odd years ago and was going to be one volume So that rather restricted the amount of material I could get in it. Uh, But that publisher went out of business. And over the following years, I've sort of enlarged it and it's split into two volumes now. So the the battles selected in this book are basically the most significant ones, I think, uh, of the relevant theatres of operation. Although, as you rightly state, there were lots of other engagements uh, and... uh, 
one or two quite significant, but just not room for them. Must have been heartbreaking to leave them out. So what this feels like is some of the greatest hits of the naval campaign. So let's start with a case where the British are ratbags in that they have to make some tough decisions. So Mers el Kabir, most people don't expect the British to start fighting the French at the start of World War II. So how does it come about? Well, of course, this came about uh, after the fall of France in uh, June uh, 1940, immediately after Dunkirk. And of course, at that time, the French Navy was very strong. Uh, They had uh, two uh, modern battleships in service and two more uh, under construction, which were nearly complete. Uh, their destroyers were probably the the fastest and the best armed in the world, and they had a range of uh, heavy and light cruisers. So um, it was quite a significant fleet, and what was worrying the British, and Churchill in particular, was what would happen if these ships fell into German hands. So um, he immediately uh, instructed the various admirals and the various theatres who were in touch with the French to negotiate. Now, obviously, the French fleet at Toulon in France stayed where it was. Uh, The elements of the French fleet at Alexandria in Egypt, uh, Admiral Cunningham there was able to negotiate a a peaceful settlement and agreed that the ships would be basically placed in standby until such time as the situation was resolved. But in Oran, Mers el-Kabir, the French admiral there was absolutely adamant that he was not going to hand his ships over to the British. He was not going to sail them to a neutral port where they could be disarmed. uh, And uh, he would react to any offensive action by the British. And despite hours of negotiation, uh, he didn't move from that position. And uh, consequently, eventually, Churchill ordered Admiral Somerville to open fire and destroy the French ships, which uh, he did partially, some escaped, uh, but a lot of damage was done, particularly to Anglo-French relations, unfortunately. But would it, would it have made would it have been that much of a game changer? It's a bit of a stupid question, really. Would it have been a major game changer had the Axis powers got hold of those ships? Oh, absolutely. I mean, subsequent to Iran, with the the French fleet basically new or uh, disarmed, the British then had the Italian fleet to deal with. And as some of the uh, accounts of the battles uh, in the book will show, that was a hard enough task in itself. If the Italian had had been reinforced by French ships, either manned by German or Italian crews, then I don't think the British could have held the Mediterranean at all. That would have meant the loss of North Africa, uh, Rommel probably would have got Egypt and the Suez Canal and the oil fields of the Middle East, and the whole course of the war might have been entirely different. So from that point of view, although it was a difficult uh, decision to take, uh, I think Churchill, based on the facts at the time, it's all very well to look at these things in hindsight, but based on the facts at the time, he didn't really have an option. Chris, pick another battle. Oh, anyway, um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the next the next one we've got loaded up is uh, River Plate, um, which um, naval history Twitter tends to is the two battles that everyone keeps posting fit- footage of from the movie. So, and seeing as the main German protagonist uh, warship is named after a personal hero of mine, Battle of the River Plate. Why does it happen? That why is there a German warship off Uruguay? 
and South America? And how does how does the action unfold from there? Well, of course, uh, in the build-up to World War II, the German fleet was significantly smaller and less powerful than the Royal Navy. You didn't have a situation like you did in World War One, where the fleets were really more or less equal and, you know, a pitch battle was always going to occur. Uh, so, faced with uh, being the underdog in terms of fleet strength, the Germans adopted uh, what's known as Gerd de Corps, an attack on trade. So even before war was uh, declared in the beginning of September 1939, they deployed ships such as the Graf Spey out into the world's oceans uh, so that when war did break out, they could start ravaging uh, the British and uh, uh, colonial trade, uh, which was so important to Britain to, to keep it fed, supplied and armed. So that was their objective. And uh, as soon as the war started, and there were reports of the Graf Spey sinking merchant ships, both in the Atlantic Ocean and the Indian Ocean, uh, then significant naval forces were diverted from other tasks to try and find her and intercept her. And as I've said in the book, that alone was a major uh, achievement by the Germans. They tied down dozens of ships looking for the Graf Spey before she was eventually found. So, um, but anyway, eventually Commodore Harwood uh, anticipated that the ship might be off the South American coast. And on uh, December the 13th, I think it was, uh, he intercepted the Graf Spey and the battle resulted. And uh, it, it was sort of more through luck, because even though she was outnumbered three to one, um, Graf Spey was suffered some crucial damage to her condensers. So it's a, a case of, sort of British lucky gunnery, and then the whole situation unfolds where Britain just completely outmaneuvers them. Well, of course, I mean, the, at the time, the, the battle was a great propaganda uh, coup for the British. You know, they'd sunk a German battleship, or at least... The, the ship had scuttled itself following the damage incurred in the battle. Um, but it was a much needed uh, propaganda boost, because don't forget, uh, we'd lost the carrier Courageous uh, torpedoed in the first days of the war. Uh, Gunter Preen in U-47 had got into Scarpa Flow and torpedoed the Royal Oak. So things weren't looking good for the Royal Navy. So the fact they had a victory to celebrate was fine. And the British Propaganda Ministry of Information obviously made the most of it. But as with all things and hindsight, uh, some revisionist history has looked at the battle closely and Harvard's tactics have been uh, criticised. Um, and in fact, the advantage didn't lay... Superficially, Graf's Bay had 11-inch guns, fired a much heavier shell and should therefore have defeated the uh, cruiser's arm with the smaller guns. But the cruisers were fast. They had a very high rate of fire, particularly the... Achilles and Ajax, they could fire a salvo every 15 seconds. So if they could get in close and keep up a high rate of fire, the advantage actually lay with them. But Harwood didn't sort of employ that advantage until it was too late. Um, But anyway, eventually, you know, the grass fade turned away, made for Montevideo, and the rest is history. Incidentally, I always think well of the Battle of the River Plate because... The, there was a film made of it, as you've referred to, in the early 1950s. And when I was at school, being a naval port in, in Plymouth, the whole school was given the day off to go to the <laughs> cinema and see the film. 
Chris, this sounds like a school where you might actually have fit in. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the, 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 when, we, when people talk about World War II naval uh, conflict in um, one of the big battles that always comes up, the one I always try and avoid is uh, the sinking of the Biz, uh, Bismarck. And um, one of the images that everybody loves is uh, the biplanes and the swordfish under um, Eugene, oh, I've forgotten his name, uh, who torpedo and take out, torpedo her and damage her rudder. Why was the swordfish particularly well suited to this task? Well, the simple answer to that is it wasn't. It was probably the worst possible aircraft you could have, but it was all that was available. And that goes back to the history of the fleet air arm in the interwar period, when uh, following the end of the First World War, when the Royal Naval Air Service and the Royal Flying Corps were amalgamated to form the Royal Air Force, then the, the naval element became part of the Royal Air Force. And the fleet air arm was a section of the Royal Air Force. Now, I'm not saying that the Royal Air Force then did their best to run the Navy down, but they had other priorities. And also the senior officers in the Navy, many of them had no air experience. So when they came to specify aircraft, they didn't really know what they were talking about. The consequence was that when it sort of came to 1939, our frontline torpedo bomber was a biplane capable of 90 knots. Um, its big attribute was the fact that it could actually carry and launch a torpedo. Other than that, it had nothing to recommend it. Um, but despite that, because of the, the persistence, the competence, the bravery of the crews, they made it work. And, you know, it's all down to them, not to the aircraft. Although, obviously, people have fond memories of the, uh, the swordfish. And it did, did uh, sort of find a niche role later in the war operating off the escort carriers, uh, where its slow flying speeds was a useful attribute for anti-submarine patrols. But as a torpedo strike aircraft, it was eminently unsuitable for the job it was asked to do. Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I just had, I, I can't believe I had to do this. I had to quickly look the guy, Google the guy's name. Eugene Esmond was the, was the command. I should know that because he's literally buried across the road from me. Yeah, um, he drops up into another question you're going to ask. He, he does indeed, um, which is where he gets his VC. I'll come to that later. But um, so why was, um, this, I mean, for those who have, had no idea what how how was the Bismarck Germany's um create well best battleship on her own out in the North Atlantic well of course originally she was accompanied by the cruiser Prinz Eugen and uh the idea was that the ships would act like the Graf Spee had been intended to act to get out into the Atlantic and to fall on the convoys now if the Bismarck had come across a, a convoy she probably would have massacred it Again, uh, to sort of counteract that, it would have meant deploying a battleship with every convoy. We just didn't have enough battleships to do that, nor enough aircraft carriers to to help out. So had she got loose on the Atlantic, it would have been a, a disaster of the first order. Um, fortunately, as things turned out, she didn't. But it was a very close-run thing. Absolutely. Um, and with the final battle with Bismarck, everyone likes to think... Um... It was a big gun battleship affair, but there's there's air air power is slowly starting to sneak in because you have swordfish. Not only do you have the swordfish strike, but you'd had the uh, Catalinas of Coastal Command trailing her. Um, so is is this starting to is the sort of air power? It's much more obvious in the Pacific, but in the Atlantic, is this still sort of the first signs of 
air power is slowly circumventing big gun battleships for the first time? Oh, I think even before that, there, there are examples. And I mean, again, it was the British who started it. They were the first people to sink a capital ship by air attack. Dive bombers operating from uh, uh, the Orkneys uh, sank the German cruiser Königsberg off Norway. Uh, but on the other hand, the German dive bombers at the time did an awful lot of damage to British ships. So even at that time, it was realised that air power uh, was becoming the key to uh, 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 sea power, as it were. But that lesson, I suppose, wasn't entirely learned until the loss of the Prince of Wales and King George and uh, sorry, and the repulse out in the uh, uh, Indian Ocean uh, later on in 1941. But, um, you know, apart from that, the, yes, air power was becoming significant. Obviously, the Catalina uh, air search, because they lost contact with the Bismarck at one point, and it was only, uh, it was fortunate that the Catalina managed to spot it after she'd been lost for 36 hours. And following that, even then, there was a chance the Bismarck could have made it back to Brest, but... Uh, the Arcreel was coming up from the south uh, with a swordfish. That was the last chance. If those swordfish hadn't been successful in their attacks, then the Bismarck would have got away. And even the swordfish attack at the end of the day was a matter of luck. Out of all the aircraft that attacked, there were only two torpedo hits, and only one of those was the vital one that disabled the rudders. Uh, I also feel I have to mention this, or Alina will kill me. My favourite part of the whole Bismarck story is um, the... Uh, Polish destroyer that sighted her and actually opened fire on Bismarck all the time, flashing, we are Polish, to the uh, German gunners. <laughs> the other technicality that always intrigues me about the Bismarck hunt, um, after the, because after the, she sank the, uh, the hood and she was being followed by the cruisers, uh, they were tracking her on radar and then they lost contact with her. And as I say, for 36 hours, they'd lost touch with that. But during that time, the Bismarck was transmitting radio signals back to Berlin, saying how well she was doing it and all the rest of it. And these were <laughs> intercepted and bearings taken on them. Uh, but this is what I always find intriguing. As a result of those bearings, they put the Bismarck much further north than she was. So the assumption was made that she was going back to Norway. So the, the home fleet battleships turned north uh, to try and follow her. and But the mistake that had been made was a technicality, something called divergence. When you uh, have a radio bearing, that's a straight line. The radio wave comes straight across the globe, uh, and that's a great circle. But when you draw a line on a map, particularly a Mercator chart, like you, you know, schoolboy atlas, that sort of thing, if you draw a straight line on that, that's not a great circle. It's what's called a rum line. And if you put the two on the chart, you end up with something that looks like a bow with a string. And the string is the rum line and the bow is the great circle. And the difference between them is called divergence in angular form. And when you multiply that by the distance, in this case, say, 1,500 miles, then you end up with a position wildly out of place. And it wasn't until they realised that mistake had been made that they replotted the bearings and then realised that Bismarck was actually heading south. But like I say, it's just one of these interesting little technical details that throws so much light on the whole episode. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Talking of Esmond, that brings us quite nicely on to uh, Operation Cerberus. Um, what was Operation Cerberus and 
did the Royal Navy really drop the ball with this? Could they, would they, should they have been able to do something about it? Well, that, of course, would fell into the aftermath of the Bismarck Affair because, as we said, she'd originally set off for the cruiser Prince Eugen, which had been detached and eventually got back to Brest, where the battle cruisers Scharnhorst and Eisenhower uh, were also uh, undergoing repairs. Now, at Brest, they were very vulnerable to air attack uh, by the RAF, who spent a lot of time attacking them, and the, the ships did sustain some damage. And had they stayed there long enough, they probably would have got sunk. So uh, Hitler decided that he wanted to bring them back to Germany. Now, the obvious way would have been to go out in the Atlantic, round through uh, Iceland and that, and back through Norway, uh, back to German ports. But boldly, they decided to come straight up the English Channel. Now, that's always been presented as a great surprise to the British, but it wasn't. The British had, had anticipated that that might happen, but there were two factors that disrupted their plans. The first was they didn't expect the Germans to make the attempt in daylight. They thought they would do it at night. And secondly, um, they assumed that the ships would be spotted as soon as they left Brest, so they would get plenty of warning. In fact, what happened was due to not so much errors, but mechanical problems like one of the radar-equipped aircraft that was covering Brest, its radar failed. Uh, and a submarine that was supposed to be in one position uh, sort of missed them coming out and so on and so forth. Anyway, the upshot of it was that the ships were almost approaching the, the narrows at uh, Dover before they realised that they were there, um, by which time it was really too late for much reaction. Um, and there weren't any naval capital ships in the English Channel anyway. They, they couldn't be risked because of the possibility of German air attack. So the yeah. whole uh, sort of uh, onus on sinking the, these ships or attacking them was by air attack. And one of those attacks, again, was the venerable swordfish, half a dozen from Manston, led by uh, Eugene Esmond, that went off literally on a suicide attack. Uh, they were just hacked out of the sky by the, the anti-aircraft fire and the strong fighter escort that... Uh, the, the Luftwaffe provided over the German ships for the whole of their transit. And like I say, all six were shot down for uh, no damage to the Germans. And similarly, attacks by MTBs, uh, that didn't achieve anything. And by which time the German ships were well past the narrow part of the channel and making their way up past the Dutch coast. And although there were several air attacks, none of them achieved anything. And it was only mines that had been laid by the RAF that uh, damaged both ships to some extent. But overall, it was a tactical success for the Germans. They got their three ships safely back to Germany with relatively little damage, although the Nijenau uh, never recommissioned. Um, but from a strategic point of view, actually, it worked to the British favour because now the ships were bottled up in Germany or Norway, they couldn't be out in the Atlantic. So... Yeah. Uh, from a British point of view, there was some light at the end of the tunnel. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Absolutely. Um, we've got a fun family legend that my, my grandmother was actually on the switchboard in Chatham when the uh, call from Plymouth came through. And... Um, uh, apparently the, the guy on the end of the phone was quite abrasive and rude and demanding to speak to the Admiral and my nan said to him may I remind you you're speaking to a lady and the guy continued to cuss and shouted but the Germans are in the channel <laughs> I'm not entirely how certain how true that is but it's a very family story in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi I'm Marcus Smith host of the Constant Wonder podcast the world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> we also have, um, talking about the Atlantic, the, the longest battle of World War II. And it's something that everybody learns in school. Well, the U-boat part, part of it, not so much the surface ships and raiders and stuff. Is there a better representation? Is this a good representation of the way the Navy spends spends the war, basically, in terms of convoy work? And is there more, or is there more of a focus on offensive operations against German logistics and shipping? Well, um, you know, obviously, it's a complex subject. Uh, the basic premise of British naval activity has always been command of the sea. So, which means that British and allied forces are free to use the, the seas as they need to move supplies, troops, uh, ammunition, and to deploy their own ships and to deny that facility to the enemy. Um, whereas, because the, the fact that the Germans didn't have a big fleet, they resorted to a war against trade, which again is quite traditional. That's what happened in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and it's quite a traditional method. So obviously convoying was important. And as I've said in the book, if the, the Battle of the Atlantic was the one battle that they couldn't afford to lose because had they done so, we wouldn't have been able to get the men and the material and supplies from America, which were necessary for D-Day uh, and uh, other operations in Europe. So from that point of view, yes, it was very important. But also, I, I did a quick tot-up looking. I think I've covered 19 battles in this book, of which, um, including the Battle of the Atlantic, only six are directly related to actions provoked by convoys. Uh, the others occur for different reasons. So although protection of trade and being able to move trade and supplies is very important, there are other reasons for naval battles. Absolutely, I completely agree with you. It's, it, you kind of had this popular, if you ask people, well, what did the Royal Navy do during the Second World War? The first thing they'll say is convoys and fight U-boats. So, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. That's true. But also the other thing, of course, is support of amphibious operations. Um, and for that, you need command of the sea before you can do it. Absolutely, yeah. And you've got a, a and the neutralization of the enemy's, enemy's navy. 
um, which brings us neatly on to, um, the, to the Mediterranean, where there is a lot more sort of, there seems to be a lot more um, conflict. And um, again, we're back to biplanes uh, and Taranto. Um, but the Italian fleet seemingly caught napping, and a lot of people have compared this to sort of a um, proto Pearl Harbor, which upsets quite a few people. But um, how, how how were they able to to get in and um, dis disable the Italian fleet? And was it really that big of a strategic win? Well, I mean, obviously, it was a tremendous achievement, no doubt. Again, again, with completely unsuitable aeroplanes, <laughs> but um, the Italians. Uh, Again, the situation in the Mediterranean against the Italians was different from in the Atlantic against the Germans because the Italians had a, quite a large and powerful surface fleet um, which had to be neutralised if the British were able to do what they wanted to do. So that was the reason for the attack on Toronto. Um, why were the Italians caught napping? Well, a number of reasons. Um, for a start, they didn't have radar. So they weren't able to sort of detect the, the radars. The only thing they had was sound detectors. Um, secondly, they did very little training in night fighting. Um, so, uh, and also the um, Italian Air Force, a bit like the RAF had done, was completely responsible for all air activity. So the Navy didn't have an air arm. Uh, mm -hmm. So again, they perhaps underestimated the potential of, of air power at the time. So for all those reasons, um, the, the British were able to launch the attack. Um, but again, slow swordfish, 21 aircraft in all, uh, flying over a heavily defended harbour. But again, um, the anti-aircraft fire, although intense, wasn't very well directed. And uh, I think only two aircraft were lost uh, and the rest survived. But, uh, you know, it was a tremendous effort by the, the Swordfish crews, and no doubt about it. Absolutely. Um, but uh, sort of comparing it to um, Cape Matapan, sounds very much Trump-esque, but would, would you say that Cape, Cape Matapan was a much more uh, decisive ba uh, battle or defeat of the Italian Navy rather than Taranto? Um well, no, not really. Uh, I mean, they were different. You know, the Toronto was the result of an airstrike, which was well executed. Toronto, uh, sorry, Matapan was more of a traditional naval battle. It, in fact, it's often quoted as the, the largest fleet battle that the Royal Navy had in World War II. Um, but um, at the end of the day, they, uh, the Navy didn't achieve as much as it might have uh, their main target was the battleship Vittorio Veneto, which, uh, although damaged by air attack and slowed down, was able to effect repairs and escape. Um, the big uh, effect, I suppose, was the, uh, one of the aircraft managed to uh, disable the cruiser Polar. Two other cruisers were sent back to stand by it, and these were uh, picked up at night by the British fleet, and all three were sunk. So at the end of the day, at least the British could chalk up three heavy cruisers, which were quite significant warships in their own right. Um, but it, it wasn't a sort of conventional fleet action. And one of the reasons the Italians were caught out there was, again, they didn't have radar, whereas the British fleet did. And coming up at night, they picked up this Italian cruisers on their radar and were able to deploy accordingly. 
Absolutely. And um, uh, Cunningham's described as uh, using his uh, three battleships like destroyers and the way that he manoeuvred them in uh, point blank range. Um, which was I mean, down less than 4,000 yards, which is point blank for battleship guns. Well, absolutely. And uh, good, a good old war spite <laughs> point blank range. It's not something you want to look at. <laughs> But they're, they're, obviously, we said the, the Mediterranean's got a lot more action in as well because you have like um, Operation Vigorous and Operation Harpoon, which are similar in that they're sort of the blockade and anti and counter blockades of Malta and Italy. But um, we've got we also have the Duisburg uh, convoy. Um, so what, what exactly is at stake if with the Duisburg convoy for both sides? Well, of course, this highlights the important strategic position of Malta in the, the Mediterranean conflict where it was uh, astride the lines of communication from uh, west to east, from Gibraltar to Alexandria and back, uh, so it could provide cover to, to British ships and convoys. Uh, and it was also astride the north-south lines from Italy uh, to North Africa, which was carrying supplies to Rommel and the Africa Corps. So in both ways, it was very important. But... It could only operate effectively from a British point of view if it could be supplied with fuel, ammunition and aircraft. Um, and as long as it was, then it was highly effective in disrupting the supply of uh, uh, communication to uh, North Africa. On the other hand, if it got run down, as happened uh, later on at the end of 1941, early 42, then the Italian Navy had virtually free reign to run convoys across to North Africa. And the progress of the campaign in North Africa, to and fro in the desert, hinged very much on which supplies were reaching North Africa, which were being uh, destroyed. And in the case of the Duisburg convoy, uh, there was a substantial loss of supplies, and importantly, two oil tankers. Um, and consequently, uh, when the British launched an offensive in North Africa, a few days later, they were able to advance and Rommel had to withdraw because he just didn't have the fuel and uh, supplies to, to hold them back. And at that point, uh, the British were able to relieve Tobruk. Later on, when the supply situation from the Axis point of view improved, Rommel was able to move back. And of course, we know historically, eventually he ended up at El Alamein, almost at uh, uh, the gates of the Suez Canal. Significance of those convoys. Absolutely, yeah. It's... Um... I was saying earlier about the attacks on German logistics and people sometimes it, it, people lose sight of logistics as having an impact on other campaigns um, about how vital they can be, which is the same for um, Malta with like, the uh, Operation Pedestal, which you mentioned, which you talked about, where the, the British are trying to get spies in to fortify Malta and the Germans are. Germans and Italians are desperately trying to stop them. Yes, that's right. I mean, that was uh, Operation Pedestal, the, uh, the convoy which effectively saved Malta, was perhaps one of the hardest fought battles that the Royal Navy ever underwent. Um, and uh, to, uh, at the beginning of that, when the convoys were leaving uh, Gibraltar, the escort included no less than four aircraft carriers, which at the time, uh, was the largest carrier fleet ever assembled, either here or in the Pacific. Um, but, and of course, one of them, Eagles, lost. Uh, others were damaged. And the loss of warships and merchant ships was appalling. But 
five merchant ships managed to make it to uh, to Malta, including the Ohio, um, which was a drama in itself. I mean, the, the Ohio should have sunk long before it got to Malta, but one way or another, it was strapped to a couple of destroyers. They managed to get it into the harbour. Um, but if the Ohio hadn't made it, then no matter how many Spitfires they flew in, uh, uh, they wouldn't have been able to fly because there would have been no fuel for them. Yeah. So that was a really epic battle. And, uh, and we had the same uh, with the, the Russian convoys as well, uh, I believe about PQ-17. And, yeah, of course. That was a disaster of the First Order. Um, and again, with hindsight, it uh, probably shouldn't have happened. Uh, but... Because uh, Admiral Pound, then the, uh, the first sea lord, was running things from London and wasn't the man on the spot, um, he took the decision to tell the convoy to scatter when really it wasn't necessary. Up to that point, the convoy had been doing quite well. OK, it had lost some ships, but it was fighting its way through. And certainly, uh, if it had stayed together, things would have been much better than they were at the end of the day when... Uh, you know, something like 20 merchant ships were sunk because they were scattered all over uh, the the Arctic Ocean. That didn't do a lot for the US Navy's respect for the Royal Navy um, because they had uh, some ships have been deployed to Scarpa Flow to assist the home fleet in uh, April 1942, and some of them were involved in the PQ-17. Um, they were very disenchanted by having to run away, as it were, and seeing the ultimate result. And uh, again, that took a lot of uh, sort of making up uh, to restore the Royal Navy's reputation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that was one of my biggest bugbears uh, with the First World War is uh, Churchill sat in um, London directing the fleets and telling the admirals what to do and then telling them off when it doesn't work. And then much better. I, I personally prefer the man on the spot who knows what he's doing than. Uh, well, that's right. Being... I mean, this is the way you know you, you should run military operations. The man on the spot should have all the information you've got, but he's the one who can see uh, the picture as it is happening on the ground or at sea, and is the one that has to make the decisions and live with the outcome of those decisions. And of course, there was the the, the grave concern that Turpitz was going to put to sea. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, that was another story, of course, was the, the Tirpitz. Um, that was a, an ongoing threat. It was a classic uh, sort of sea power in being uh, thing where the threat is there, so you have to be prepared to counteract it. Once the Tirpitz was sunk, by the, ultimately by the RAF in 1940, late 1944, then at that point the, the Navy was able to release capital ships and aircraft carriers to go off to the Far East to continue the war against Japan. Not to that point, they hadn't really been able to do so. Yeah, and, and also with the, the Scharnhorst being sunk at North Cape as well, which removes the, the second layer of threat. Well, that's right, yes. I mean, that, that was a, a great success. Uh, and uh, again, in you know, the weather conditions at the time were appalling, but uh, that was one occasion where the Navy worked well and uh, uh, achieved you know, the results it was after. I believe it was Luchin's prediction of, uh, he actually said to, to uh, Raider, if we keep sending our ships out one at a time, the British will sink them one at a, ta- one at a time. Oh, yeah, that's so true, yes. Yeah. I mean, that's where the Barents Sea battle was uh, a bit of a disaster from the German point of view, because they had a reasonable concentration of force 
Um, but they squandered it. They split the force and uh, it achieved negligible results. And Hitler, of course, was furious. Yeah, the, that's what um, they they ordered that all the surface ships should be scrapped afterwards. That's right. Yeah. And problem was they put Kumitz in charge, and he was he was not a very good admiral. <laughs> no, no, and of course he was constrained by. You know, on the one hand, Hitler's demanding action, but on the other, he's saying, don't get our ships damaged. So, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's very hard on the uh, the commander's concern. Well, to be fair, though, he was the idiot that got Blucher sank on the day one of the invasion of Norway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not a fan. Interesting, I say interestingly. No, I can say that here. It's not my kids. Usually when I say interestingly, my kids run away. But... um Kumitz had actually been... Grandparents, a grandchild would say, oh, it's another of granddad's five-minute lectures. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what I get. <laughs> but um, Kumitz should have been in charge of Scharnhorst at North Cape, but he wasn't well, so Bay was in charge, put in charge. So otherwise he would, would have been in for that. Probably made, would have made a difference. <laughs> but um, so we're, sort of to wrap up, we're, to go over, uh, to sort of look under the umbrella of how the naval battles start in 1939. I mean, they're pretty much over by 1944 in this theatre. Um, are we seeing a move away from uh, emphasis from sort of big gun battleships to win set battles like they did in the First World War or to more um, other means of defeating the enemy, such as aircraft and submarines? Um, yeah, obviously, at the beginning of the Second World War, the the various sort of uh, naval pundits, as it were, were at loggerheads about what the future of naval warfare was going to be. On the one hand, there were those who sort of said, no, the battleships still king, uh, you know, fleets of battleships will win the wars. And there were others who were saying, no, aircraft are the coming thing, they're going to be the decisive factor. And of course, that was the way it worked out in the end. But it was a gradual transition. And it was really the Americans in the Pacific that really brought carrier warfare uh, to a peak of efficiency, and um, you know that was probably the uh, the ultimate. Um, and you know at that point the, the British were playing catch up, um, although they did sort of eventually participate in the the Pacific War. Their carriers were nowhere near as effective as the American ones, and of course the Americans had the advantage of the fact that their navy had always had complete command of their, of its air branch, so it was able to design its own aircraft, had its own Bureau of Aeronautics, its senior officers, uh, most of them had aviator experience, um, and you know they were able to sort of move forward in a way which the Royal Navy wasn't for various reasons between the wars. Yeah, I mean as well. Also, I suppose. Um navies tend to innovate to deal with their competition and um, the German Navy's uh, aircraft carrier program is very very lacking so I suppose it wasn't that real need as well for the British to sort of compete in that way. Well no I mean the the role of the aircraft carrier or one of the roles of the aircraft carrier was the fighter defense of the fleet but interestingly in the years immediately before World War II, the Royal Navy's policy was if the fleet came under air attack, was to strike all the aircraft down in the hangar and defeat air attack with anti-aircraft fire. And the idea of a fighter defence 
wasn't, uh, you know, pushed uh, very far. But of course, once the war started and the fleet experienced actual air attack, they suddenly realised, yes, they did need fighters. Uh, but at the time, the, the Navy had no special fighters available. And eventually they got versions of the Hurricane and the Spitfire, which, although they did work, weren't uh, ideal for carrier operation. Whereas the Americans had a succession of aircraft like the Wildcat, Hellcat, Corsair, all of which were designed uh, for carrier operations and were quite the equivalent of any land-based fighters that they might engage with. Well, mentioning that, I just want to hop back to, I've, I forgot to, should have mentioned this earlier, uh, one of my favourites, uh, one I've written about quite a few times, is uh, Operation Juno and the sinking of HMS Glorious. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Where the, 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 there was absolutely no air, um, the oily hues hadn't even launched a, a patrol, patrol aircraft. No. Uh, well, of course, there are all sorts of uh, backgrounds to that one. Uh, the other sort of thread is that he was eager to get back to uh, Britain to court-martial his operations officer, um, who, you know, he had a personal conflict with. You know, sort of how much of that is true, I don't know. But, yeah, that was another disaster of the First Order. But that, again, was where you didn't have air-minded senior officers. Exactly. Yeah, he'd been a submarine officer, if I remember correctly, in the First yeah. World War. Unlucky to run into a, a German a First World War submarine officer who was on, in charge of two battleships. <laughs> no, unfortunately, I mean, we, we lost at the outbreak of the war. The British carrier fleet was as large as the American carrier fleet in terms of numbers of ships. But, of course, we lost the Courageous virtually within a week. Glorious a few months later. Ark Royal was sunk uh, in forty one. Uh, Hermes was sunk early in 1942. Um, Illustrious was very badly damaged and was out of the war for nearly 12 months. So, you know, in sort of 41, 42, our carrier strength was absolutely minimal. And it was only after that that it began to build up again, uh, particularly with the introduction of escort carriers, which again the Americans built in large numbers. It was quite lucky that we didn't, we weren't fighting in the Mediterranean, the Atlantic, a, a carrier-based enemy, and that we could just continue to rely on our old um, Queen Elizabeth-class battleships. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, actually, I mean, they well, they did do a bit about the math patterns we were talking about, but on the whole, those old battleships didn't do very much, uh, <laughs> and the old R-class battleships were never saw battle as such. Uh, they ended up escorting convoys most of the time, and we even gave one to the Russians, so... Um, you know, by that time, the day of the battleship had definitely gone. And any yeah. battleships that were useful were the, lo- the latest generation fast battleships capable of sort of 30 knots speed to that. Uh. Thank you very much, Leo. Uh, that's, that's been great. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to someone about boats uh, or naval history without them. Either, uh, my, as I said, in my children's case, running away or the man on the bus looking at me going, dude, this is my stop. So uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you this afternoon. And um, this book is... Uh, called uh, Naval Battles of the Second World War in the Mediterranean Atlantic. And you've got a second one on the, on the Pacific as well. Pacific and Far East, yes, that's just been published. So hopefully we can get together again to go through that one at some point. Absolutely. I'm already looking forward to it. But thank you very much for coming on to, to speak to us today. Thank you. Chris, good to talk to you. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org. 
where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.